Loved ones, what's going on? I'm Bruce. This is A Bigger Story, Season 2, The Sump Pump Sessions. If you weren't here for Episode 1, you can go back and listen to it. We talked about my new location here in the house in Algonquin, Illinois, a northwest suburb of Chicago. And I'm in the basement, and the sump pump at this house goes off way too regularly. (laughs) I'm not going to tell that story all over again, but just suffice to say, it could go off while I'm recording. I'm not editing it out. That's why season two of A Bigger Story is called The Sump Pump Sessions. Each episode has a title, too. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But first, I just finished my lunch of a chicken breast wrapped in a tortilla. little mayo, not a lot. Trying to eat a little more heart-healthy these days for the reasons that one would need to when you are uh, tripping the odometer more and more. So I've had my lunch. I have my glass of water and my throat coat tea and a Diet Coke all in front of me. So at any moment, I could choose to drink from anyone. The wells are full. And I'm recording this on a Wednesday that happens to be National International Women's Day. So let's listen to this for a second. Because on International Women's Day, who else would you want to play except the incomparable Nina Simone? And when you think that spirituality, and especially Christian spirituality in the West, needs a reboot, what better song than Nina's cover of The Beatles' Revolution, number one and number two? I know you're sitting there just like I am, thinking... Boy, that'd be cool if you just let the whole song play, but you know, I, I can't do that because licensing copyright. So just a little fair use of the first part of that song. You can download it, listen to it on YouTube or whatever your uh, music streaming choice is. We're going to talk a lot in this season about the revolution that Western American Christianity desperately needs. Not all of it. There are pockets, really cool pockets, but large scale, you know, (laughs) I think that we need a world where there is a spiritual component, a soulful component, because you don't change minds by changing minds. (laughs) I know that sounds a little odd, but You don't change someone's mind by changing their mind. You change someone's mind by changing their heart, which is another way of saying you change their mind by changing their soul, which is another way of saying you change someone's mind by changing their spirit, spirituality. See how I put that together? And we don't change somebody else's heart, soul, and spirit unless we too are ready to have our heart, soul's and spirits changed. It's that Rumi quote from last week. Outside of notions of right doing and wrongdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. So this season, uh, just really quickly, uh, what you can look forward to and what I'm looking forward to, I have been typing and writing into my little notes app so many things. I, I almost made the mistake 
of having like three scripts for one show today. And they're not scripts. They're just notes. I told you I wasn't going to be scripted this year, so I'm going off the cuff, but I do make some notes. And then my notes for today are some of the topics we're going to hit on in episodes coming up. Oh, and by the way, I promise we're going to have guests, and we are going to have guests. Like when we address the topic of Christian nationalism. In order to address that topic, I think we need to also understand issues of church and state. I think, first of all, that there are more nuances to that issue uh, that I want to learn more about. And I have a friend who is both an ordained minister and a highly regarded attorney who is a member of the bar of the United States Supreme Court. And he has devoted his life to these separation of church and state, not establishment of a state religion issues, and in a time when there seems to be a lot of hypocrisy in our country. You know, and that hypocrisy that sort of works like this, that we want to insist on separation of church and state until that separation lands at our doorstep in a way where we want our religion inserted into some issue, some ethical issue. And maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not me. Maybe it is. But so I have this friend. I want to have him on as a guest. Uh, He's argued before the United States Supreme Court on these issues. Um, He advocates for a radical separation of church and state, for freedom of religion, freedom for religion, and freedom from religion. These are really important issues. So I'm going to reach out to him and see if he'd be willing to come on and talk to us. Um, Another issue that I think is important for us to talk about is uh, abortion is a big issue in our society right now. Think about that on International Women's Day, especially. And I have a friend who, again, is an ordained pastor and also has a PhD in ethics. She's an ethicist, ethics concerned with human conduct, the behavior of individuals in society and the behavior of communities in society and how that all comes together how we make our ethical choices, how those choices are informed. I want to have her on. And then I don't know who I'm going to reach out to for this one yet. I also have questions about the metaphysics of religion, especially of Christianity, and questions like who or what is God? What do we mean when we talk about the divine? Are there metaphysics related to evil? Is there like a devil? Is there this power of evil that is larger and bigger than the evil that might reside in an individual person. And what is metaphysics? What does it even mean? You know, like physics, Newton, Einstein, Heisenberg, and then what beyond that, but not beyond it as something that's different than physics, because the minute we start to talk about whether there is something beyond physics, We have to talk about physics, too, because if there is divine power and energy in the world of some sort, then physics is part of that divine energy. And I want to talk about that all together in relation to things like miracles, the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of Christ, which may or may not be the same thing, by the way. I don't want to dive too deeply into that. Forget I said it. Appearances of Jesus after the crucifixion, after the resurrection— And the stories in the Hebrew scriptures about like parting the Red Sea 
and this little basket of loaves and fishes feeding whole multitudes of people. And we'll find a guest to come on and talk about those things too, because I think it's important. So all that coming up, but let's get into this episode for today. The episode title, buckle up, it's this, don't go to church. Don't go to church. And if the minute you hear me say that, that troubles you and you're wondering why in God's name would Bruce say don't go to church, I apologize. I should let you off the hook now, (laughs) but you'll just have to wait a minute. And maybe it excites you to hear me say that too. If it excites you, you'll hear more of what I mean by that too. And it may surprise you what I have to say. And so um, let's jump in. I listen to a ton of other podcasts and I listen to a lot of what some of the great, what I think are great spiritual thinkers have to say whether it's on a YouTube video or on their own websites. So I don't know that there's a whole lot that you're ever going to hear on a bigger story that is novel, that like generated out of my own thought that it's unique and it's original. And I think that that's kind of an idolatry anyway, to think that in order to speak into issues of spirituality or into the issues of anything that we have to be novel and unique and come up with these original ideas. There's nothing new under the sun. And just think of me as a conduit for what I'm learning from these especially great spiritual teachers. And I hope I do them justice when I share their ideas. When I share their ideas and I'm aware that I'm sharing their ideas, I'll always give them credit. But I have to tell you too that there are some like Thomas Merton, now of blessed memory, Uh, Richard Rohr, a great living mystic, Cynthia Bourgeau, Jim Finley, who teaches all about mysticism, an Episcopal priest by the name of Ed Bacon, who's retired now, but still every once in a while he's speaking out into the world. Whenever I share something that I know is their idea, and probably with them it came from somebody before them too, I'll always give them credit. But I've been listening to these spiritual teachers. Uh, Some of them feel like mentors to me. So they shape my thinking and what I say. So you may hear me say something that I should have credited to somebody else, but I've been hearing it and advocating and espousing it for so long that I might forget who said it, just building on this body of a wisdom tradition. And one of those is the Jesuit priest father, Greg Boyle. He lives in L.A., where he founded and leads Homeboy Industries, the world's largest gang intervention organization in the world. I think it's like 15, is that right? 15,000 people every year come through their doors, people who are looking to somehow escape and transform lives that have been somehow sucked into uh, this culture of gang violence. And they're looking to change that, to get away from it. So Greg Boyle is this Jesuit priest, and he has learned a lot working with gang members, former gang members in the Los Angeles area, Homeboy Industries. I'll put a link in the show notes. One of the things I've learned from Greg is that our authentic mission as those who base our spiritual lives, center them on Jesus Christ, 
This is not exclusive to followers of Jesus Christ, to be sure. But a Christ-centered approach, a mission in the world from Father Greg is that we need to be about expanding the circle of compassion so that no one stands outside of it. Expanding the circle of compassion so that no one stands outside of it. So if you or I do go to church, that the purpose for going to church is to go from there, to stand at the margins. And this is Father Greg Boyle. I'm quoting him. To go from wherever we are, to stand at the margins like Jesus did, which Father Greg says is the only way those margins will ever get erased, that we are to go stand at the margins with the poor, the voiceless, with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear, to go to stand with the despised, the left out, the demonized, so that the demonizing will stop. How many people, especially on so-called cable news networks, in politics, in social media, spend most of their time demonizing others. And so Father Greg calls us to go stand with the despised, the left out, the demonizing, so that the demonizing will stop. And that's what I mean when I say don't go to church unless you go to church as a springboard to go do those other things. Or another take on it, my friend Jacqua Brown-Williams, she wrote recently, is it this? She wrote it after her son teasingly accused her of being strange. She was like, Yes, I'm strange. Is it strange when I get more divine inspiration outside the body of Christ than inside? Is it strange? Jacqua wrote, Is it strange when I'm closer to God looking at nature? Is it strange when God is closer and speaking more clearly when I'm in a restaurant or the mall? Is it strange? that God never stops talking until I do walk into church to worship? You see, God and I, she says, God and I have constant communication even when I sleep. And so the episode title, Don't Go to Church Unless, we'll keep filling in the unless, but listen to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said this about church. Church is not the place you go to. It's the place you go from. And there it is. That's what I mean when I say this episode title is Don't Go To Church. It's not the place you go to. It's the place you go from. But I think even Dr. King missed the nuance because I don't think the church is ever the place we go. The church is not the place we go to. It's not the place we go from either because the church is not a place. The church is the people, not a building, not a place. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the church is the body of Christ, the people who are devoted to the way of Christ. It's us standing at the margins like Jesus did, standing at the margins And again, this is Father Greg Boyle, standing at the margins with those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And Father Greg says, if we do that, if we go to those places 
informed, transformed maybe by the reason we went to church, but knowing that we only go to church so that we can go from church to stand with the despised, the left out. A few weeks ago in the church calendar, that's the calendar of like church seasons and festivals and commemorations and and other stuff like that that might make your eyes glaze over. But a couple of weeks ago, it was the transfiguration of Jesus. It was Transfiguration Sunday. And on that Sunday, the gospel lesson we had in front of us was this story of Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, his disciples. And as he's transfigured, the story says, Jesus' face shone like the sun, his clothes became dazzling white, and Moses and Elijah all of a sudden were there, these Hebrew scripture figures, which is meant to draw this connection from Jesus to the whole grand arc, the whole grand narrative of the story. So Peter, James, and John up on the high mountain with Jesus, Jesus' face is transfigured, Moses and Elijah appear. What started as three becomes five. Jesus, Peter, James, John, Moses, and Elijah. And Peter thinks that this is the best thing ever, and he wants to stay there. So he puts up three dwellings, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The problem is that is not the plan. That is not the vision Jesus has been working to write on the hearts of his disciples. They don't get it. The vision is not to stay up in a high place and build a structure, build a church to house Jesus and Moses and Elijah. The vision is to go. So Jesus leads them down the mountain back to the people. So they go down the mountain and Jesus leads, literally leads his disciples to the margins with the poor the voiceless, with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear. They go to stand with the despised, the left out, the demonized, so that the demonizing will stop. And it's literally the very next scene in the Gospel of Matthew after that transfiguration story. The very next thing that Jesus does after this transfiguration is he leads the disciples out to a crowd where a man comes and kneels before him and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, and he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And that word that ends up in an English Bible as epileptic is literally, he's a lunatic. He's moon crazy, moonstruck. That's where moonstruck and lunatic before that, that's where all that comes from. So that's the very first thing that Jesus does after Peter and James and John want to build these structures up on the mountain and keep everything there. Jesus leads them to where there's someone, this epileptic, this lunatic, who throws himself into the fire and into the water and has seizures. So people think that he's possessed. He's demonized. And this is why I think one of the reasons so many churches are struggling today is this message is hard. The church is not the place that we go to. It's the place, it's the people we go from. And it sounds right, but putting it into practice, if you actually do it, if you go to the margins with the easily despised and readily left out, which is the only way that the margins will be erased, if you go to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop, Greg Boyle points out that you have to brace yourself 
because people will accuse you of wasting your time. But the prophet Jeremiah, Father Greg points out, tells us this, for in this place, which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of those who sing. Going to the margins, going to the wasteland is not a waste of time. It's where joy, mirth, gladness, song gets restored. I grew up in New York, the son of an Irish Catholic father. His mother was an O'Grady, and he's really proud of that Irish heritage. He wasn't a church-going Irish Catholic. That's another story, and there were good reasons for it. Had something to do with the fierce, really fierce Dominican sisters who ran St. Brendan's Parish School in his neighborhood in the Bronx. So he wasn't a practicing Catholic, but still every Friday night in our house was pizza night. And I learned from my father that this was because the Pope had said we couldn't eat meat on Fridays. Now, a lot of Catholics ate fish, but no one in our family, my dad included, we weren't excited about fish, especially those Mrs. Paul's fish sticks. Yeah. So we ate pizza because we couldn't eat meat. When I was about 14, I had this sudden realization, our Friday night pizzas had pepperoni on them. Always. So I did what any mouthy 14-year-old would do. I pointed it out. I said, hey, dad, why is Friday night pizza night? Well, partly because we can't eat meat. And dad, what is that on the pizza? What do you mean what's on the pizza? Those round things. That's pepperoni. What do you think it is? Dad, pepperoni is a meat. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. When you start paying for the pizzas, you can call pepperoni a meat. My dad looked at the pizzas. He didn't see meat. It's important what we see when we're looking at something. It's important what we see when we're looking at someone. I looked at the pizza and saw a way to snag my dad. I looked and I saw meat, forbidden meat. My dad looked and he just saw this delicious New York pizza adorned with the stuff that made it most awesome. And he wasn't wrong. Father Greg Boyle says it's important the images we have of God. And it's important what images we have of ourselves, what we see in ourselves and each other, because what we see in ourselves especially, we end up projecting on God. What we see in ourselves, we end up projecting on God and on others. And if we have an image of ourselves as anything less than the good, awesome, light-filled children of God we are, we'll find a way to project that image on God and on others. And then we'll spend our time trying to snag them, trying to distort them, trying to snag God, distort God. One final story I recently heard from Father Greg at Homeboy Industries. It was about being at a worship service, and he was ready to stand up and give the homily. And one of the homies, the former gang members, was assigned to read the psalm. So he stood up at the lectern, the homie. It was Psalm 113, beginning at verse 4. And Paco the homie read, the Lord is exhausted. And Father Greg looked at Paco, looked at his bulletin, and then thought, what the hell? It was supposed to be, the Lord is exalted, not exhausted. But then Father Greg said, I think exhausted is better. (laughs) It said that God created us in God's image, and then we returned the favor. When we create and see God in our own image, I think God gets exhausted by that. When we see ourselves in God's image, God is exalted. And we exalt God. We exalt each other. And I think we function a lot better. We are created in the image and likeness of God. 
We become people of eternal, abundant life, of the radiant light of God, and the light that shines from us makes the world less dark when we see ourselves in God's image. About a month ago, I was invited to come speak to a church group in the Chicago area. They were interested in hearing about my vision and rationale for an ecumenical church, one that gets beyond the denominationalism and the divisions, what I call the ain't nobody right but us mentality. In the Q&A after the talk, this young man, 14, same age I was when I tried to snag my dad, this 14-year-old young guy raises his hand and he asks a question. Remembering being 14 and that great pepperoni incident, I sort of humorously braced myself, but this young man's question was profound. He started by quoting Aristotle from memory, right? A 14-year-old quoting Aristotle accurately. He said, Aristotle said that happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. So how do you define happiness? How do you define happiness? So, man, I closed my eyes, kind of prayed silently for a bit. Honoring the question of a 14-year-old is sacred responsibility. And so I looked at him and I said, for me, happiness is the moment-by-moment, nanosecond-by-nanosecond awareness that we are gods and delighting every day, every moment knowing that we are gods and that everyone, everyone else we encounter anytime, anywhere are also gods and created in God's image and likeness. I think he liked my answer. His grandmother was sitting next to him and she jumps in and she says, is that kind of what Mormons believe? Sounds very Mormon. And my head exploded. And I said, I have to be honest, I, I, I've never really studied Mormonism or known a Mormon with whom I've had deep discussions about God, so I don't know. And she continued. She persisted. She's like, I think there's something in Mormonism where they believe we are all a god. <laughs> and that's when it landed. I had said to her grandson that happiness for me is delighting in knowing that we are all gods, G-O-D apostrophe S, possessive, as in happiness comes from delighting in knowing that we belong to God, that we are created in God's image and likeness. And his grandmother didn't hear the apostrophe. She thought I meant that we are all gods, all a God. And you know, maybe in the midst of our miscommunication, she was onto something, at least onto this reminder that God did indeed say, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness. In other words, looking at each other, at ourselves and at every human being as possessing the divine image, which is so critical when we go, when we go to stand at the margins with the poor, the voiceless, with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear, to go knowing that they too are created in the image and likeness of God and to love them, and to be with them accordingly. It's the only way the margins get erased. When I heard Father Greg talk about this, he quoted the Christmas hymn, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, and he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. I think that's the job description of everyone who claims to follow Christ. You appear, and the soul feels its worth. 
If more people were doing that, that would be one hell of a revolution, wouldn't it? We'll let Nina Simone take us out. A new episode drops every Wednesday. Would love to hear from you. PastorBruceCole at gmail.com. That's not going to be the ultimate email, but I'm trying to work some things out. So for now, PastorBruceCole at gmail.com. When that changes, I'll let you know. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, you are loved.